during this period of time, I'd like to wrap up the first of the Vipassana knowledges, the knowledge of comprehension, where we first uh, become aware of the unique and the universal characteristics. So the unique characteristics of experience is the for physical experience it's the quality of the sensations that we feel for mental experience it is the quality of the uh, mental experience meaning uh, something like uh, anger feels differently than joy joy feels differently than frustration frustration feels differently than um, you know, self-consciousness and shame feels different than all of them so as we are beginning to, uh, and as we get some facility at cataloging all of these mental and physical and emotional experiences, and that's really what it is, is we just, mm, the attention opens uh, to include more than just the primary object, the rising falling of the abdomen, for example, and it expands into all predominant objects, which in time covers everything, all physical experiences, mental, emotional. And in time we become familiar with the different cognitive processes of the mind. Uh, in the beginning we might just name them all as thinking and leave them at be and, and return to the primary object. But in time we will begin to uh, recognize the different qualities of thinking from planning to remembering, rehearsing, explaining, justifying, figuring out, uh, complaining, whinging, whining. And there's just many different uh, kinds of thinking that we become familiar with. They all have their own flavor. They all have their own uh, thought content, so to speak. But we become aware of them along with all of the uh, emotions. It's just uh, emotional states uh, as well as um, mental states that we don't usually think of as emotional like a sense of contentment, a sense of ease uh, a sense of simmering ennui mm, or boredom uh, we don't think of them as emotions so much but they're certainly distinctive mental states that we uh, can experience so this this period of uh, this first layer of insight or this first opening to Vipassana insight is a vast cataloging of um, known experience uh, so that we can begin to recognize them as just another experience being known. It ceases to be, I'm planning to, oh, planning's being known. I'm afraid to, oh, fear is being known. Uh, I'm depressed. Oh, depression is being known. I'm bored. Oh, boredom is being known. So we extract, so to speak, we extract the identification with experience and instead there is an awareness of experience. Well, this is not easy. <laughs> we are so invested in our stories of, of ourselves that uh, it really takes a lot of ongoing steadiness of, uh, of faith and energy, as I explained before, faith, energy, uh, recognition, mindfulness, remembering to recognize. And uh, in the process, because it's so difficult, we have a lot of frustration. 
we have a lot of disappointment, we have a lot of self-judgment, uh, and you know, we, we, we fall back into identifying with all of these different mental states, even as we are becoming aware of them, we fall back into identifying with them. So it's a, it's kind of, it can be a rather lengthy process to, to open to the uh, characteristics of anicca, which is impermanence, dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, which is the conditional or the impersonal nature. And when we do, or as we do open to these three experiences, these three characteristics of all experience, we complain. We really do not like to see that things are impermanent. We do not like to see that things have the dukkha characteristics. And we certainly don't like to see things that are basically the mind and the body are out of control. And so we are assaulted with uh, all kinds of facts. Basically, we, we, we empirically get it, that this is the way it is. And it's pretty overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's so disorienting that we can, uh, we can just, you know, sometimes we just feel like we're going crazy. We just kind of go out of our mind. Not really going crazy, but we're really not happy uh, with the way things are going. And there can be a lot of uh, pain, physical pain as well as emotional pain, that uh, is just uh, unbearable. And it's really hard to keep going. So it's one of the rolling up the mat stages. But as we continue to practice, we will stabilize in the recognition of the three characteristics. Uh, And and, uh, it's not that it becomes... Easier, I guess it just becomes more familiar, you know, that you you've begun to learn that this is the way it is. But yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, both physical and mental pain, and there's quite a lot of boredom, quite a lot of uh, what we call oblivion, where the mind just goes blank, where we just can't bear to be with things anymore. They're either too uh, painful uh, or they're too uh, unusual. So the mind just goes uh, into a kind of oblivion. So we just want to know that this particular phase of practice where we first open to the three characteristics is challenging. But, and also, as we open to see that things are impermanent, that things are you know, not so satisfactory and things are kind of out of our control and they're impersonal and they have their own nature. As we see these in an immediate empirical way in one moment with one experience, we have this insight. We get it. It's like, God, that's the way it is. And then our mind will inferentially apply that understanding to everything we've experienced in the past. And so we start reviewing the past through the lens of impermanence, through the lens of dukkha, through the lens of anatta. And not only the past, but we start anticipating the future through the lens of impermanence, through the lens of unsatisfactoriness, and through the lens of the impersonal uh, anatta characteristic. And again, this, is, this can, can be both shocking and terrorizing and terrifying and uh, difficult, you know, uh, the personal history review part uh, can be, you know, sobering, really, really sobering. And when we anticipate the future, 
with these, with all experience displaying these characteristics, uh, we can be very uh, not happy about that either. But uh, this inferential insight is a kind of a natural activity. Once we see things empirically, then inferentially the mind is going to think. So there's a lot of thinking goes on around the Dharma, around Dharma and Dharma topics. And we have to reaffirm our faith frequently. And we have to, uh, we just find ourselves mulling over the Four Noble Truths a lot. And we just, we just really find ourselves immersed in how to understand this experience that we're, that we're having from the mindfulness. And the only reliable way of understanding it is to refer to the Dharma. And so there's a lot of uh, doubt about the Dharma, but there's also a lot of faith about the Dharma because it's the only thing that kind of explains what we're seeing of our direct and immediate life's experience. So in time, or with experience, we begin to gain some confidence. We begin to, our, our, our faith and confidence in this practice as revealing the truth becomes more grounded. And so we overcome all of the doubts about ourself, about practice, about the efficacy of practice, about the usefulness of practice, uh, which get aroused because of seeing these three characteristics. Because they, they, they're so unexpected, really, that uh, we can think that we're doing it wrong, or the practice doesn't really work, or the teacher doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. And so we have doubt. But a skillful teacher will find a way to keep you practicing so that you can eventually mature in your confidence while you're integrating the knowledge of these three characteristics. In time, you'll have more confidence, less doubt. And then, when you, when you, when you kind of reach that decision, when, when practice reaches that decision where now we have confidence, then there's an, a rapid acceleration of objects. Meaning, whereas before you were just noticing one thing and you're kind of dealing with it, and as I've been asking you what happened to it when you saw it, and you could explain what happened to it, and then another thing, and you see the three characteristics of that, and you see what happens to it. Well, this is the pace of uh, objects being known at this stage. But when there's con- once there's confidence and when the doubt is removed, then the mind can do what it does without any hindrance, meaning the continuity of mindfulness is pretty steady. And the mind, what the mind does is it knows. The mind knows. It knows anything. It knows everything. And once the hindrances are out of the way and there's no more doubt, then, or no more doubt temporarily, then the pace of noting accelerates out of control. Things go by so fast that you see them all, but you can't possibly name them. You can't hardly recognize them, but you see them all. And so the pace of uh, what you see just spins or, or just speeds up terrifically. And there's, there's a, a stability in the awareness, but there's a, a rapid extremely rapid uh, flow of objects being known. This is at the beginning of what we call the beginning of rising and passing away, where you see the momentary rising and passing away of everything. 
It's just instant, instant. It arises and passes away instantly. And yet the mind is so mature in its, in its uh, awareness that it can see everything. You can see everything. You can't, you can't possibly keep up with it or name it or note it or anything like that, labeling. can't do that. But you can just sit there kind of stunned with, with kind of just like a gazing and just recognizing it all. What happens now that the mind is not hindered by restlessness and doubt and attachment and aversion, it's not having a reaction, an emotional reaction to all of these experiences. They're just, it's just seeing them kind of acknowledging this is the way it is, everything's impermanent. It's unsta- it, not that it's unstable, it's just like you can't, you can't slow down the, the pace of noticing in the mind. You can't slow it down. So because the mind can see this, and because the mind is now unhin- unhindered, not unhinged, but unhindered, uh, it takes great delight. And now there's this arising of what I call the spiritual goodies. They're not really called spiritual goodies. you know. Uh, in fact, I use that term in the online course that I'll be doing, uh, in the write-up of the online course that I'm going to be doing for this uh, Manual of Insight in September. I use the word spiritual goodies in the, the people at Wisdom, the publishers, came back and said, what do you mean spiritual goodies? I don't recognize that term. And I, and I think, we all know what that is. It's like, Joy and bliss and tranquility and faith and effortless energy and piercing clarity and panoramic wisdom and all those things that, well, we've been looking for ever since we started practice, you know, and they, they arise. And so when they arise, these, uh, it starts usually with joy where you where and I don't mean the joy that you can think about, oh, isn't that nice joy? I mean... The whole body and mind is infused with joy. I mean, it just takes off. It is uplifting. It is pass out ecstasy, up to and including pass out ecstasy, which, as Mahasi Sayadaw says in the book, is beyond anything you have ever felt and experienced in your life before. It's true. It's true. And these things will happen. You can't stop them from happening when there's that continuity of awareness. The thing is, they come because the mind is doing well, doing practice well. And we, have, we can have great tranquility, great stability of mind, and effortless energy without making any effort. It just happens. And the kinds of rapture or joy that we, that we feel, just to give you some idea, there's momentary joy, which is kind of like these little goosebumps that just kind of flood through you, or you get these little, um, like, elevator drops, you know, you know, you get these little shocks to the whole system. Or well, then there's flashing joy, which is um, where you get this creeping goose flesh, you know, where you just get, you get the chills just kind of, you know, and your spine is just kind of like waking up, and you just kind of get pretty lit up like that. And then there's a showering or overwhelming joy where the whole body just feels like it's being washed with a pleasantness. There's a very uplifting pleasantness. And then there's uplifting joy, which is uh, kind of like where the body is levitating, where the body just feels like it's so light. Really. And this is because of the mind. The mind is so light and energetic. The body 
The mind conditions feelings in the body. So we call them pitijarupa. This is physical experience conditioned by the joy of the mind. And so because the mind is so light and it can just adapt to, it can go anywhere, it can notice everything without any effort. The body feels lighter than a feather. I mean, it's just so light. It's like you feel like you're levitating. And sometimes the body moves spontaneously. It just arises, you know, just your arms lift up and, you know, it's kind of unusual, to say the least. But it's also very pleasant, (laughs) extraordinarily pleasant. And then there's the um, pervading or suffusing, where uh, the the whole body feels like it's filled with uh, helium and every cell, and you can feel every cell of your body is just happy. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's pretty good. So when this kind of experience happens, you will think, I'm enlightened. This is it. You will think that. That's the very nature of this, this stage of, of, of practice, is that you will think, this is so good, I can't imagine anybody else has ever experienced this. This is unique to me. I have discovered something that no one else knows. I'll bet my teacher doesn't even know about this. And you will think that. I, I remember when Saira Upandita was telling me, you know, when this, when this stage happens, you will think that I haven't even experienced this. You'll think that. And I thought, well, that's silly. I'm not going to think that. Yet, I did. <laughs> you will, too. And it's not only joy. Sometimes we get this um, bliss. We get a kind of bliss which is without the excitement of all this joy. It's just so smooth. It's just like everything is just soft, wrapped, smooth tranquility. It's like nothing gets through to you. You're insulated from any kind of dukkha, so to speak. Nothing. It's so pleasant. No, no unpleasantness at all. You also begin to see auras, or you see lights. A lot of times, uh, the lights that are flashing in your mind are so bright, even in the middle of the night, you'll think, if you're sitting in a dark room, you will think someone came in and turned on all the lights like are here in the room. And you're just sitting there with your eyes closed. And if you open your eyes to check it out, the room will be pitch black. And yet, when you close your eyes, it is lit up like spotlights. And you see these kind of lights everywhere, day and night, emitting from people, emitting from yourself. It's just phenomenal. Now, if you don't have a teacher that knows what you're talking about, if you go to your therapist and you say, hey, by the way, you know, I'm having these kind of experiences where I'm just kind of like, ah, wow, you know, ecstatic half the day, I'm just seeing all kinds of lights. You know what they're going to say? Here's some medication. Take these pills. Or you, you better stop doing what you're doing. So you don't, you don't share these kind of experiences with other people. You share it with your teacher. Because they can help you get over it. And you want to get over it. But, no, you don't really want to get over it. You want to indulge. <laughs> really, you want to indulge in it all you can. And, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, it's because 
these are so pleasant that we take delight in them. It's not that the experience of joy is a hindrance or a defilement, but the taking delight in it is. Okay? That's attachment. We get attached to this tranquility. We get attached to this joy. We get attached to this bliss. We get attached to this, you know, piercing clarity. We get attached to this panoramic wisdom. We get attached to all of these spiritual goodies. And we think we attach to them with one of three qualities of mind. Either conceit, craving, or wrong view. And this is how we attach to them. If it's craving... We say, I want more. I like this. This is pleasant. This is satisfying. This is fulfilling. And you can't help but feel that way. Or when it's conceit, you say, wow, aren't I something? Wow, this is so much better than it was before. Now I'm a much better me than I was when I was suffering with dukkha. And through that comparing mind, we think, this is, this is great. And then with wrong view, we think, this is happening to me. I'm making this happen. This is unique to me. And because of these, they don't appear as thoughts. I mean, you don't have those kind of thoughts. You wouldn't believe them anyway. But you have these assumptions which go unacknowledged underneath these experiences. You just have this assumption that this is really good. This is, I'm really doing good. well. This is much better than before. And it's because of this, these kinds of attachment that we can't let go until we see that we're indulging in conceit, craving, and wrong view. And then when we see that, we're conce- we're, that we are indulging in this conceit, craving, and wrong view, this attaching to these experiences, we just have to, we have to make a decision. It's not that we make a decision. Our practice unfolds in a decisive way. Until we can recognize these qualities of mind, joy, piti, bliss, and all those things, until we can recognize them as just another object being known, with no excitement, no indulgence, no critique, no craving, and wrong view, until we can, we won't go past that. We will be stuck there. So, basically, we have to recognize these are just other experiences that have arisen due to causes and conditions outside of our control. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. They've arisen outside of my control. They are impermanent. They have the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness because they don't last and you can't own them. And they arise due to causes and conditions, not because of you. So when you see these three characteristics, then eventually you can just, yes, joy is being known. Bliss is being known. You know, clarity is being known. Happiness is being known. Delight is being known. Okay, just, you know, just like that pain was pain being known. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Ecstatic bliss is being known. When you can be that equanimous about these kinds of experience, then, of course, you move on. You move on. This is called the immature arising and passing away. Immature arising and passing away is when all these spiritual goodies arise and we attach to them with conceit, craving, and wrong view. As the mind becomes clear that this is going nowhere, these are just scenic turnouts on the route, 
so to speak, enjoyable, pleasant things. Uh, but uh, you, basically your, your development of insight has stopped. We call them pseudo-nibbana. You think it's enlightenment. You'll think they're enlightenment. They're not. But you'll think they are. We also call them the upakalesis, corruptions of insight. In and of themselves, joy and bliss and clarity and effortless energy is not a defilement. It's the taking delight in them that is. Okay? So, in the taking the delight, the kind of delight we take is we feel gratified by these experiences. Of course, we've been looking for these kind of experiences. Remember all that dukkha that we were experiencing just before this? We were experiencing all this dukkha and pain in the body and itching and heat and all kinds of unbearable stuff. And we're looking for some relief. Well, now we finally got it. But we can't hang on to it. There are some qualities of mind that arise with this experience. And they are the what I call the plasticity factors of the mind. Uh, because neuroscientists have understand now that the mind is not a fixed thing. It's malleable, it's flexible, and the more you work the mind, the more pliable and flexible it becomes. So there are these qualities of mind called lahuta, lightness of mind, adaptability of mind, proficiency of mind, straightness of mind. And when this... When these uh, upakalesas arise, or when these spiritual goodies arise, the mind is very light, very adapt. It can it can adapt to any experience you have, no matter what arises. You can be with it instantly and openly and receptively, and there's no hesitation at all in experiencing anything. And the mind becomes very straight, meaning it has no ability to deceive itself anymore. We have been deceiving ourselves for so long with our self-rationalizations and narratives and self-explanations and you know, self-partial partial to ourself that we don't know what's straight. But once the mind is straight and we see things just as they are without any spin, we're not spinning it in our favor or not spinning it in anybody else's favor, then the mind is very uncomplicated, very simple. Not like a simpleton, but it just is not easily confused. It just sees things as they are. So these qualities also arise with these uh, spiritual goodies. And these qualities will stay present for the remainder of the journey uh, where there's a certain lightness, adaptability. So as we as we um, mature in our ability to let go of indulging in the spiritual goodies, then the arising and passing away becomes stronger, or the clarity of the arising and passing away becomes stronger and faster. And there is a tremendous amount of equanimity. Once we can put aside the attachment and the indulgence in the spiritual goodies, the equanimity becomes pervasive. And actually it is said that this is as good as it gets. Because uh, you really do feel um, like practice is mature and it's clear and you're not caught up in any uh, of the defilements. Uh, the body is light and comfortable. It has 
uh, you can sit for long periods of time uh, without any effort, without any pain, without any discomfort. Uh, there's no more apparent dukkha dukkha. There's no more pain in the body. There's no more dissatisfaction with experience. Uh, things do change, it's true, uh, but the equanimity, uh, the balance of mind in seeing the changing nature of things is stable. We don't mind seeing things, that seeing that things change. So the uh, equanimity becomes really strong and uh, the clarity with which we understand these experiences and the three characteristics is phenomenal. You know, there's, there's at this point, there's just no doubt about the, the Dharma, the teachings of the Dharma, the practice of the Dharma, your ability to do the practice, the efficacy of it, the effectiveness of it, the value of it. No doubt. Doubt has not been uprooted, but it certainly has been uh, arrested from arising at this point. So this is the uh, mature stage of uh, arising and passing away. Let me just see what else I want to say about this. Ten corruptions of insight. Yes. Okay. They say this is the sweetest happiness in Vipassana practice where the mind is quite balanced. You know, when I talk about, and many of you have heard me speak about the five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration or samadhi, and wisdom. Faith and wisdom have to be kept in balance. If you have too much faith, you can just be kind of lost in blind faith and have no wisdom. On the other hand, if you have too much book knowledge that kind of wisdom, you may not have enough faith to actually do the practice. And so too, in the energy and the samadhi or the energy tranquility uh, pair, they have to be kept in balance. With too much energy, the mind will be restless. With too much samadhi or tranquility, the mind will be sleepy and dull. So it's mindfulness, the fifth factor, which keeps these two pairs in balance. And when the two, these two pairs are kept in balance, then life proceeds very smoothly. The practice proceeds very smoothly with clear awareness and not being, uh, not being caught in sinking mind or agitation, not being caught in too much reflection, reflective thinking about your experience, but just actually able to, to be with experience. So this is, as I said, uh, the sweetest happiness of um, of Vipassana practice. Hmm. What else to say? The, the spiritual goodies still arise, meaning there's still joy, there's still bliss, there's still equanimity, there's still clarity, think, but there's no more indulging in them. So they're there. They're just there as a kind of a background, background uh, qualities of mind. And so you're not, uh, you're not taking delight or you're not feeling gratified by them so you're not, um, the practice is no longer obstructed or the progress of insight is no longer obstructed. The decisive uh, insight of this arising and passing away is to see that things arise and pass away extremely rapidly. 
in the snap of a finger, there's dozens of things that can be known and will be known uh, in, in at arising and passing away. And uh, the, the decisive, the work that has to be accomplished at arising and passing away is we have to reaffirm in ourselves through practice that no matter what is happening, no matter how delightful or how overbearingly suffering it is, it's just another experience being known. That has got to get firmly locked into the your understand. That wisdom has to grow uh, to where it's unshakable. Unshakable knowledge that this is the path of practice. Something is being known. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be very pleasant, very unpleasant. It's just another experience being known. And if we can mature in that understanding, or as we mature in that understanding, then we're not, we're not going to be hindered by anything. We're not going to get caught in a reaction to pleasant or unpleasant experience. We're just going to be able to proceed uh, with recognizing each moment's experience as it is without reaction. So that is the mature arising and passing away where you can see at the, um, at the bottom on the sheet, you can see at the bottom of the uh, Ten Corruptions of Insight, it's called Purification by Knowledge and Vision of What is Path and Not Path. So now we know the path forward is to recognize everything is just another experience being known. And we know that the path, what is not the path is indulging in the spiritual goodies. That is not the path which we might have mistaken, and we did, we would have mistaken, when they were first arising. So this mature arising and passing away is equivalent to the third jhana. Now, I'm not saying we're not practicing jhanas when we're practicing vipassana. Jhanas are absorption in a single object. But the qualities of mind that are present in third jhana are well, of the five jhana factors of connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort, and uh, one-pointedness. In third jhana, there's no connecting, there's no sustaining, and there's no joy. There's just single-pointedness and a kind of a comfort of mind and body. So in Vipassana practice, at, at, at this third Vipassana jhana, this is where we no longer are indulging in joy, but there's a tranquility and a kind of an ease in the body and a single-pointedness of the mind that is very rapid on moment-to-moment experience. Okay? So I don't know if Mahasi Sairo mentions it in this book. I couldn't find it. Uh, but uh, he has mentioned that uh, the Vipassana jhanas are not jhanas so much as they're degrees of insight knowledge as you move up through through the uh, stages of insight, uh, you'll have more and more refined knowledge of the three characteristics. Okay, so when I mentioned the first, first beginning to see anicca, dukkha, and anatta, oh, it's very disruptive to our uh, sense of self, very destabilizing and very difficult. Now at the mature rising and passing away, ah, we see them with uh, easily. We don't take delight in them. We don't get uh, wigged out by them. No, we're not upset by him. We accept this. Oh, this is the way it is. 
things are impermanent, things are unstable, meaning they don't provide a lasting uh, security or stability, that's unsatisfactory, and they're also um, not under our immediate control, that's the anatta characteristic. So I'm going to end here because this is as good as it gets, and there's still quite a ways to go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.